This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus, a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network. And I'm Ben Schiller, Features Editor here at Coindesk. And joining me today is Danny Nelson. How are you, Danny? I am well. How are you, Ben? I'm very good. I'm full of beans. It's Monday morning and we are rocking here. And it's Cam Thompson, Web3 reporter. Hey, Cam. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going good. It's going good. All right. We're going to get right to it now. Just a quick note about Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast about consensus and some of the wonderful speakers and uh, debates that we have there. But it's an all-round year thing, so it's not just tied to the conference. We're going all in all the time. So uh, stay tuned and we'll have some great stuff for you. Let's get into it. Ben, what are these beans you're full of? Uh, Is it because you're British? It must be because you're British. (laughs) It must be because I'm British. I'm not sure where that comes from, actually, that phrase, but uh, it just means I'm very perky and happy to be here today, Danny, especially with you. You had your beans on toast, so there you go. You're ready to rock. I'm beans and I'm, I'm farting all the way to the bank. Let's get to it. Joining us this week, we have the very talented Cheyenne Ligon. Cheyenne is here to talk about insider trading in the cryptoverse. There have been a couple of big insider trading cases impacting NFTs as well as tokens. So Cheyenne, welcome to the show. What have you got for us? Yeah, so this is the first crypto insider trading case, or at least that's what the Department of Justice says. So basically, OpenSea had an employee, Nate Chastain, who was sort of head of product at OpenSea, which is an NFT platform. And part of his job included picking which NFTs and NFT collections to feature on the website. And obviously, you know, people would find out about things that way, and then that would kind of get trading going. And because Nate knew by virtue of of his position what was going to be featured, he was apparently buying them on the cheap, featuring them, and then selling them once the prices rose. And uh, in doing that, made about $50,000, which, you know, I mean, I would love to have 50000 extra dollars, but it's certainly not enough to uh, go to prison for 40 years over, which is the maximum sentence he's facing now. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> insider trading. And uh, he tried to fight the case. Uh, his lawyers tried to have it dismissed, saying that, you know, NFTs weren't securities and that you know, that there was basically no grounds to call this insider trading. Uh, It didn't work. He took it to trial, which is always sort of a risk. Uh, He did not take a plea deal. And uh, the the jury found him guilty after three days of deliberation. So he's going to go to prison. Uh, He hasn't been sentenced yet. We don't know for how long. Do we have any idea? I mean, it can't be 40 years, surely. No, no. I mean, I would be very surprised, uh, but hard to tell if it's anything to go off of. The second crypto-related insider trading case was just sort of uh, settled. um, I'm forgetting his first name, but one of the Wahi brothers who was working at Coinbase, the exchange in a similar kind of product management position, he knew what tokens were about to be listed and was feeding his brother and a friend information about what was going to be listed on the exchange. And then they were trading based off that insider information. Uh, His brother pleaded guilty, got 10 months in prison. Uh, He pleaded guilty and got two years in prison. So that typically is probably a lighter sentence because they cooperated with the government. I would assume that Nate will go for longer than that because he tried to fight it. Interesting. So you said that the lawyers in the OpenSea case tried to fight it on the basis that if these tokens are not securities, it can't be securities fraud or a form of securities fraud. 
I guess that gets right to the issue at the heart of crypto and, and regulation about whether things are securities or not. Uh, and, and do you think that these crypto cases are being prosecuted in any way different from a typical financial services inside a trading case? Uh, no, I mean, I think that this this pair of cases, right? I mean, I think that that indicates that the government is basically like, look, I mean, you can call it whatever you want to call it. It can come in whatever form you want it to come in. But if you're illegally profiting off insider information, that is insider trading and that's fraud and it will be prosecuted as such. So I think that people who and I, I do think that this behavior is pretty rampant because people think that it's maybe outside of the jurisdiction of the law. I think that these cases kind of correct the record on that. Yeah, I find these two cases fascinating. I want to focus a little bit more on the differences, especially with the NFT one, because I'm more familiar with this world, obviously, as a Web3 reporter. And I see a lot of people conduct these rug pulls where they buy into a collection that's they know is going to pump and then immediately sell all of their tokens and totally dump the floor price. So how do you think for NFTs, it's a little bit easier or different in order to conduct that kind of behavior you know it's something that a lot of people get away with and it's really unfortunate and i think it's really significant to see one of the first cases actually prosecuting someone for this behavior yeah no it's really interesting and i was thinking about that too because it feels like one of those stories where you're like duh like of course this is happening um you know it's not like this behavior is is rare and i think that in our job we see examples of this all the time right but i mean the difference is that if you're conducting yourself pseudonymously on the internet and maybe you live in a foreign country, the government's desire to go after you when there is a plethora of cases that they could choose from is pretty low. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of international scammers that the government doesn't go after or can't go after, um, chooses not to. Uh, but I mean, Nate Chastain was an employee and like a executive at a very reputable company. So I think it's sort of an example of somebody who abused a position of power rather than somebody who abused coding skills and, I don't know, the faith of dummies on the internet. Absolutely. I mean, do you think that the regulators here, the prosecutors, deliberately went after a well-known company to make a point here? I mean, I guess you can send more of a signal by going after someone at OpenSea or Coinbase than some thing that nobody's ever heard of. Yeah, I mean, whether it's a signal to the company or whether it's sort of a, I think it's more just that this is an example of like egregiously bad behavior, right? Not because he really did so much, right? He only made 50 grand. I think it's more just that like he was an executive at a reputable company who was profiting off illegal trading. So I, I think it's more that like if these companies want to get regulated and they do, I mean, OpenSea is based in New York. It's subject to some of the strictest financial regulations in the country. And this is still going on. I mean, I think that regulators have more of an incentive to go after somebody like that than they do a guy living in France who's like, I don't know, making poop NFTs and rug pulling. So do these cases shed any light on what is and isn't a security? Because I remember covering the early days of, I think, the, the NFT case. And it was like they, they, the feds framed it as insider trading, which is a very specific rule under securities law. But really what they were going after the guy on was wire fraud, right? So it's, it's, it was trading on insider information, but it wasn't the letter of the law of insider trading like on the books. So how does that play out? 
You know, that is a good question, and you should probably talk to a lawyer for a better, smarter answer than I can. I want to talk I'm... to a former paralegal, though. How about that? <laughs> oh, well, then you're, you've come to the right place um, for my very limited scope of knowledge. He was got on money laundering and wire fraud charges. So, I mean, you're right. Like, it is... It's interesting. I feel like insider trading is one of those things that's both a description of an activity and a crime. And maybe in Nate's case, it fits the description of like a definition of activity, right? But it doesn't necessarily fit the definition for the crime. I'm not sure. I mean, I think we can look at what he did and say, oh, wow, yeah, gee, that was insider trading. But maybe they couldn't get him on that. So they got him on the other stuff. But either way, I mean, I think like we can have an academic discussion all day long. But the point is, is that the government is going after what it sees as insider trading. I don't think that this case really gets to the bottom of like what's a security and what's not a security. I think that the SEC's stance right now is basically everything is a security, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And, you know, most lawyers that I talk to are just sort of playing it as if everything were a security. And I think it's really interesting, too, you know. At Coindesk, as we are all journalists here, we disclose any crypto holdings that we have in our bios. People can see what we own, especially if it happens to be a project that we might be writing about. And for a lot of these other companies, NFT companies specifically, you know, that's something that's very important. You want to know what these employees hold, if they are able to disclose that in any public way. That way, you know, you can see if someone is acting on certain trades or certain information. It's a very vital part of keeping this industry safe. Also, away from regulatory scrutiny, because after this case with Nate, who knows what they might look into next, right? I'm curious if you have any predictions about what's to come next in terms of NFT regulation with this case. I think that there will be more to come. This behavior is continuing and prosecution, I'm sure, will continue. I mean, I feel like I don't know of any cases that I could imagine that the government will be going after. But I mean, there is an active community on Twitter that sort sort of sniffs out uh, bad behavior. And I think most people probably get away with it at this point. But, you know, I don't know. I, I think that when you're doing things like that, you have to function under the assumption that like the government is playing whack-a-mole and sometimes you're the mole that's going to get whacked. Right. Crypto opens up tokenization to so many things and the future, we're told, is going to include many more tokens, including tokens of real-world assets uh, down the line. I mean, it's just it's impossible to imagine regulators or prosecutors going after every single instance of this. I and mean, there's just so many markets, so many tokens, so many people. It's just a, a minefield, really, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's a mess. All right. Thank you, Cheyenne, for coming on the show as usual. Uh, great to see you. And we'll be watching this debate closely in the months and years ahead. I think we'll see a lot more of these actions. Okay, let's move on. We asked our dear listeners what they think about the Ordinals debate, and they gave a number of pithy replies, uh, which we're going to pick up on now. So one of those came from a responder called Emery Berker, and he described Ordinals as an attack on Bitcoin, and we have to fork this corrupt taproot out. Uh, Danny Nelson, what do you think about that reply? Oh, that's just quite the maximalist uh, response right there, right? Like just saying this is not the proper use of the one true chain, and we therefore have to excise it and protect Bitcoin for what it was originally meant to be. This is a pretty drastic response, given that Taproot has been around for a couple years now, I believe, on the Bitcoin network. And getting rid of it as the solution is, a, I would say, a bit drastic of a response. Right. Just to give some context here, I mean, uh, a number of people have called for the banning of non-monetary uses, like ordinals or the BRC20 token 
from the Bitcoin network and, and basically forking out these uh, non-pure uses. And that comment that we just had was followed up by another comment to say uh, it's a free market and if people are willing to pay the fees, let them. And that comes from talking to goats, uh, the handle there. Cam, what do you think about that? Do you think uh, Bitcoin should be a free market? I mean, is this really open source technology and people uh, can use whatever they use it for? I think, Ben, that's exactly what people are forgetting. Bitcoin is a network. It is not just a token. The reason why we have the separation between big B for the network, little b for the currency is because little b was built on top of the Bitcoin network. Now, people forget that Bitcoin itself isn't just a cryptocurrency. There is this underlying blockchain network. And part of this greater Web3 ethos that I think a lot of people tend to forget, especially when talking about ordinals, is that having open source technology invites people. It encourages people to build on top of it. That being said, I don't see an issue with people building BRC20s, ordinals-based projects. And it is a free market in that sense. I mean, you do with the technology what you will. It's only better for the ecosystem. And at the end of the day, if it's driving value into the price of Bitcoin into greater crypto markets, I say go ahead. I think it's a great use of the technology. So there is a good counter argument to that point of view, which is to say that if Bitcoin is being used for these non-monetary uses, uh, the fees rise and that freezes out people who cannot afford those fees. And we're talking particularly people in the developing world who might rely on Bitcoin where there is no um, you know, formal financial system and they might really need it for payments and other purposes. So, um, you know, people trading JPEGs on, on Bitcoin is, is, is freezing out people who really need the, the network for you know, everyday uses. So that, that's a bad thing. So uh, another comment here comes from Amboss, and this kind of chimes with the idea that Bitcoin really doesn't care what people think of it because it's just sort of whirring in the background. It's unstoppable money. And whether you like it uh, for this use or that use is, uh, is not really uh, germane. And Amboss says, uh, there is no debate because our opinions don't matter when it comes to Bitcoin. It is a ruthlessly neutral protocol. What matters is that the fee is paid and those fees have incentivized more miners to come online and enhance the security of the Bitcoin ledger. There is no such thing as spam. What do you think about that, Danny? Yeah, I think right there, it, that uh, listener has provided a counterpoint to your counterpoint, right? So in the long term, there will not be more Bitcoin produced, I think, around the year 2140. And that means that the economics of how Bitcoin will stay around need to change. There needs to be an incentive for miners to continue doing the expensive work to keep up the network. And the fee increase that is being created by ordinals and by BRC20 could actually stand in as a solution to that problem. So right there, you have all these competing factors. One, is Bitcoin usable by people if they're getting priced out? But two, will anyone be able to use Bitcoin if there's no economic reason to keep it going? Right? So it's a, a give and take. Right. I thought David Morris, who's our CoinDesk columnist, picked up on this last week in a very good way. And he said that, you know, the debate is not about whether Bitcoin could be used for JPEGs or ordinals or BRC20 tokens. It's about whether it can scale. And uh, if it can't scale to use JPEGs, then how, it's gonna, how is it going to scale to be used as a monetary network for um, people around the world? So uh, maybe that's really the issue. Thanks very much, guys. So I think this debate's going to play out in, in the months ahead, uh, as it always has with Bitcoin. And we really encourage our listeners to give us uh, feedback on our show page, and we will engage uh, with your comments and discuss them here on the show. So thanks very much. Let's move on. And don't just leave comments about these issues. Tell us about the show too. If you want to throw some things down into the dungeon, let us know.
so today we've taken the express elevator down into the dungeon, Danny's dungeon. Here we are. We're going to talk about what's in my crazy mind this week. First, we'll start with what it was in it last week, the Aragon ecosystem about how to govern DAOs. Aragon had a big blow up last week over how it was moving its own money around and, and how it was empowering or not empowering its DAO. The big outcome of that appears to have been Aragon walking back some of its more bombastic statements about disenfranchising the DAO and is moving forward trying to figure out a path that all parties can be amenable to. So after a week of fireworks, cooler heads are prevailing there. But what I really want to talk about this week in the dungeon is greed, a token that isn't a token that really just stands to point out all the crazy greed that runs through the crypto world, especially in meme coin season as we are in. So Cam, what do you think of this? Have you got a chance to read this story yet? Have you, have you gotten a piece of greed? No, actually, I really didn't. I haven't didn't have a chance to look over it. Oh, I saw you in the doc, so you, you Sorry, I opened it. It was like actively being edited, <laughs> but... All right, quick recap of greed. So greed is a token on the Solana network that started as a joke from one guy named Voshi in Croatia. Voshi was so fed up with all these completely pointless cryptocurrencies that were being created and immediately dumping that he tried to make fun of them on Twitter by saying, if you're greedy, retweet this and you'll get a free greed token. And he went to bed thinking people would see it and say, haha, that's funny. But instead, he woke up and he had hundreds of messages from people trying to get the pre-sale of greed token. And so he was so disenchanted from this and driven to action that he did actually create a greed token and created this whole social experiment whereby people had to do crazy things to get it that they shouldn't do for security reasons, and they did it anyway. And it just stands as a good point to me of how people are driven by greed in this market. They're not willing to stop and think, is it really a good idea if I sign over my Twitter permissions so anyone can tweet from my account? Or is it really a good idea for me to sign this scammy looking transaction from my main wallet? No, they just see a token. It might go up in value. So they move quickly to get it. So this is a lesson in not being too greedy, I think, when it comes to crypto. I think it's fascinating the fact that he started this as a joke and then so many people just decided that they wanted to get the airdrop of the next thing, get some type of token in some way, going to whatever extent. I mean, it just proves the exact point. I think that people are so caught up in this craze. You know, Danny, I love the opening line of that story, coin spring. It's true. People are so eager to just get their hands on anything and... At the end of the day, maybe it drives short-term value into the market, but I don't really know if it's long-term going to stick. I mean, that's just how it has been working over the past two years, You know, starting with the rise of Dogecoin in the beginning of 2021. I mean, it's, a, it's fascinating, this eagerness to just own something that doesn't even give any utility. Right. I mean, I was going to say the same thing. The definite echoes of uh, Dogecoin here, which was also started as a joke and then became a phenomenon. And is now uh, rumored to be the uh, new payment mechanism of Twitter, no less, uh, with the support of Elon Musk. So, I mean, is there a possibility here, Danny, that Greedcoin becomes the next Dogecoin and actually becomes a thing? So it is kind of impossible. And that's because of the mechanics of this thing. So you have to remember that this guy wanted to prove a point without accidentally having ramifications of creating a token. The big ramifications that are possible are, of course, that people, regardless of your intention, trade it and try to make and ultimately lose money. 
So what he did was he had his developers write a smart contract that freezes the token in people's wallets. So they literally cannot trade it. And if you cannot trade the thing, you cannot make or lose money on the thing other than, I guess, like buying someone's wallet itself from them. But that's not really something people do. So it's frozen in their wallets and it actually does, you could say, have more utility than any other meme coin. Because if you look at the balance that's in your wallet, if you got the airdrop, it's actually the phone number for the SEC to report a complaint. So people will always have in their wallets the phone number for the SEC. And that's that's providing some utility, right? They can't trade it, but they can use it as a point of reference when they get scammed somewhere else. It's good to know. Good to have that number there. Always useful. So Danny, you're a very serious reporter. You've uh, uncovered a lot of scams and important things in your time here at Coinesk and probably before. Uh, how do you feel about reporting on this meta experiment here, the social experiment? It's kind of a token, but really a commentary on tokens. It is entirely a commentary on tokens. It came out of knowing this guy Voshi since I think Bitcoin 2022. I believe I met him at the Solana Hacker House in Miami, Florida. And, you know, he's just one of those people that is from around the world, but you run into at different conferences. So a a conference friend, I guess you could say. So I came to this story from the perspective of knowing who this person was, and that always helps the reporter understand how seriously or not seriously to take the story. And I know from speaking to Voshi often that he's someone who is uh, perhaps even more cynical about crypto than I am, which Ben, you, you might say, is saying quite a lot there. But he just looks at all this stuff and, and is in despair. And that makes a story like this quite compelling because I would say it actually does teach us a very important lesson to people who signed up for this token and really made a fool of themselves by tweeting, I'm doing it for the greed in order to get the SEC's phone number airdropped into their wallets. So Danny, what are your moves in terms of this token? I am not getting it for two reasons. One, the airdrop already happened. I can't get it anymore. And two, in order to get it, you have to remember, you had to do two very, very, very stupid things. You, one, had to sign away your Twitter permissions, and you had to connect your wallet with a suspicious-looking transaction. These are two things you should not do. One, because someone will randomly tweet from your account without your permission, though you already gave them your permission. And two, they might drain your wallet. So no one should get greed, and no one should get any token that requires them to do the things that greed requires them to do, because the point of it is to not be greedy and to think before you do. And that is the lesson that I hope crypto walks away from all this with, because 40,000 people signed over their Twitter permissions in order to get this thing, and 50,000 wallets signed the transaction. And you might say, well, how did 40,000 people do it if 50,000 wallets did? I thought you had to do both steps to get it. Well, that's because people were so greedy that they found out a little loophole where they might not actually have to hand over their Twitter permissions and tried to get more tokens, more greed tokens, than they were allocated. It's all proving it's so important then, Danny. It very much is. Very much is. I guess that my pronunciations on the dangers of greed are falling on deaf ears, but come next week to Danny's Dungeon to hear more warnings from the Cryptoverse. We're making our way through the forest. It's a cloudy day. You're seeing a lot of green, small things in the distance. You're wondering, are they trees? No, they're moving closer towards you. Very muscular, dressed in loincloth. They climb on top of a large stone building. It's the Coinbase logo. There's one in the background that's being 
extra creepy, moving closer to you, looking like it's going to try to consume the stone in its mouth. It doesn't. But you stand there and you think, wow, this looks like something that Beeple would have created. And it was something that Beeple would have created. It was one of Beeple's everydays last week in response to the Coinbase and Pepe drama. Hello, everyone. This is Cam's Corner, and we're going to be talking about what went down last week in Coin Spring in terms of Pepe. Wait, before before you continue, Cam, I have to say, I've, I've, this is the first time in my three and a half years at Coindesk that I've ever heard the word loincloth used in a sentence. I don't know if I really want to congratulate you for that, but here we are. Sorry, I don't know how else to describe it. They were, the Pepes are wearing tiny little little blue things in this picture. I mean, that's that's the only way I can describe it. Uh, this is terrible. Anyways, some drama ensued last week when Coinbase published research about Pepe Coin, the meme coin that has been the token of the spring. There has been a lot of craze around it. And a day later, after backlash, a Coinbase employee came out and apologized for having published this research because of the alt-right connections that the meme has previously had. I'm curious... This is one of the first cases where I've seen people come after a meme that has fueled money into crypto markets, and it genuinely has some legitimately dangerous roots. I would say, I mean, not to be controversial here, but, uh, you know, the Pepe icon has been around for a long time. Uh, it predates crypto. And it seems to me that, you know, crypto has sort of changed the image of Pepe and the meaning of Pepe to a point where there's associations while they're there and they're historical, they have no sort of meaning nowadays. I might be wrong about that. What do you think about that, Danny? I think that Pepe has emerged from its insidious backstory because Pepe did not start as a symbol of the alt-right. Pepe was an internet cartoon that, for whatever reason, became co-opted as a symbol of the alt-right in, I think, 2015, 2016. It lived in infamy for a while, and then for whatever reason, crypto decided that Pepe just was its own and began either co-opting or accepting this meme as its own thing. And I, I think that you have to give Pepe as a symbol a pass here because it's not like this was some symbol like the number 88 that only exists because the alt-right created it uh, to exist. It was a thing. It became a not-so-good thing. And then it has, at least in the crypto world, I think, moved beyond its association with that thing. And it's evolved. So I think that it's just... The whole thing is silly, and I don't really understand why Coinbase... Actually, I do understand why Coinbase felt the need to say something. It's because Coinbase is a public company. And when you're a public company, your responsibilities are a little different. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, this conversation about having something culturally significant being co-opted by a group that might change the undertones or the real meaning of it in general is something that can be dangerous. But also, we have to remember the original intentions of the actual creation, right? And I think that, Ben, you are right. It has been sort of changed in terms of the narrative in the crypto space. You know, people in crypto look at Pepe as a token or as an NFT. They don't necessarily look at it as a meme. However, I think it's important for everyone to acknowledge those roots and to at least understand how the meme has been changed over the course of its existence. Now, I'm switching the conversation a little bit because I want to revisit a story I wrote a month ago with my editor, Rosie Perper, about Nakamigos and meme-inspired NFT collections. And I think this whole meme coin spring, coin spring, has reemphasized this idea that 
Meme coins might not drive long-term value into crypto markets, but they certainly allow people to experience the technology for the first time, at least become sort of interested in it, and then being onboarded as a result. Yeah, I would agree with that. And we just published a piece last week, actually, looking at the rise of the meme economy or meme stocks, uh, meme NFTs, meme coins, which is normally dated to around during the pandemic when everyone was sitting at home and had some money if they were lucky to have money and were just sort of trading freely in these meme related assets. And a lot of people think that was because one, we were bored, but two, we wanted to be part of a a community of like-minded people and uh, memes make finance fun in a way that finance isn't always fun. And I think that's what's really driving the interest around these things. It's, It's kind of a fun to be part of a community. It's fun to take the piss out of the whole thing but also make money from from that activity so that really what's driving I'm going to I'm going to have to be the moralizing annoying person here and say finance should not be fun. If finance is fun, then people are putting their money into bad decisions and Pepe coin and meme coins are a bad decision. The statistics show if you didn't buy Pepe coin in the first week, you didn't make much money. The people who made money are the ones who had it from the beginning and everyone else might be up a little bit, might be down a little bit, might be down a lot, but they're not making good financial decisions. They're being greedy. And that people have to not be greedy. They have to be sensible in what they're doing. And I would say, I don't know, like, is this the thing we want to be the reason why people are getting driven into crypto? It, it, like, it's a bit navel-gazy, right? It's a bit moralizing and thinking, who am I to say what's right and wrong? But arriving in crypto because you want to 10x on a coin, that's not the reason why the true crypto believers believe in this technology. I don't know if it, those people are going to stick around for all the other uses that people think crypto will be useful for. I don't think it matters that people are sticking around, though. I think it matters that people just got onboarded in the first place. And yeah, people are spending money. And maybe finance is fun in this case. And maybe finance shouldn't be fun. But that's long-term finance. I believe that in the short term, if people are coming into crypto because of a meme coin, that's okay. That is totally okay. People are still creating a wallet, maybe purchasing another token in order to trade it for this token, maybe buying an NFT. But at the end of the day, they're still interacting with blockchain technology. And that's promising because even if it doesn't last in Pepe, it might go somewhere else. Maybe they'll buy Bitcoin. Maybe they'll buy Ethereum. Maybe they'll start doing some DeFi stuff. I don't know. It's just exciting to see that people are coming into the space, even though the meme behind it might just be a meme and might have some undertones that do not represent where it's at right now. I'm not arguing in favor of people trading in meme coins, but I think if you want to be current on the internet uh, as a financial player, then you have to understand uh, what people want. And clearly what the rise of the meme economy shows is that people want not just value and to make money, but they want to be included and feel like they're part of a community and have some fun during their daily lives. I I, I guess I'm just the guy yelling, eat your vegetables at the clouds, right? That's okay. I will say this about Pepe coin positively. As of right now, Pepe Coin is not available on Robinhood, unlike Dogecoin, which means if you want to buy Pepe Coin, you're probably going to have to actually create a wallet, as Cam was saying. You're probably actually going to have to interact with the real crypto ecosystem and not just buy a weird like share representation of Pepe Coin on your Robinhood account that doesn't actually give you ownership of the token. So That to me is, I guess, a plus because it does, at the very least, teach a lot of people who are newcomers about how to interact with crypto. All right. Well, 
When spring's still going on, we'll see what summer's going to be. Drop some names. Any ideas? Desk. Desk coin. Desk coin summer. Exactly. Desk coin summer, which you can still claim by listening to this podcast. So make sure you're listening. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know what you like. You know, it was fun to hear your thoughts on BRC20s. We want to keep hearing more of that. So please respond to our tweets when we (laughs) promote this show on Twitter. Please respond. Shoot us a DM. My DMs are open. I just found out. And make sure you keep listening. That was Carpe Consensus. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Danny. Bye. See you all next week. Cheers. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.